Welcome back to Venture Studio. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. This week is part two of Dave's interview with Brad Harrison of Scout Ventures. If you missed part one, you can find it and all of our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and wherever else you might get your podcasts. Let's jump right back into the Venture Studio office for part two with Brad Harrison. In the office, baby. Let's talk about that, investor to founder. Be an active listener. Think. Don't just blurt out whatever you think. Just don't try to you know, have a quick answer. Build a relationship. Build the understanding. Here's, here's, here's the inevitable question on this. It's such a fast-paced environment now. Deals get done so fast. People are saying, are you in, are you out? And you know, How do you uh, try to bring this, this sense of authenticity and cultivate, you know, deep relationships in, in an atmosphere that is just crazy with the iPhones going and the laptops and everyone. How do you, how do you, how do you balance that? How do you do that? So, so, you know, really kind of two things. So first off at Scout, we do something a little bit different. If we find an entrepreneur or a team of entrepreneurs and we like the vertical and we like the team dynamic We'll bring them in, and if we confirm in that meeting that there's chemistry, we normally pick five to ten people in the scout network, and we introduce the founders to those people before we've ever written a check. And that does two things. Number one, they're like, wait a second, these guys are not asshole VCs. They just... They just made some very valuable introductions before they've ever given me money. So they're able to see value beyond the cash. And, you know, that is one of the ways in which we try to get to know them, right? They talk to a couple of our advisors, maybe a couple of LPs, maybe a couple of potential investors, um, so that they realize that, like, hey, this is a team sport. You know, we at Scout... We have a bunch of things we think we're really good at and we're going to help you with. And hey, we have a really strong network of other people that are going to help you. And then seeing that dynamic between the founders and our advisors, what that allows us to do is capture a lot of data in a very short period of time. So without doing, you know, formal reference checks and due diligence and all of that, it's easy enough, right? If I introduce you to a group of entrepreneurs, Dave, and they're rock stars, and you don't even understand the technology, which I'm sure you would, but you would say, hey, Brad, you know, I don't know if that technology makes sense, but man, that team is amazing, right? right? And sometimes that's all the feedback we need, right? Um, You know, it's interesting because where we invest you know, you basically have to have your own philosophy and you're a pioneer, right? Like you can't wait for everybody else to agree, right? When you start doing series A, series B, series C, right? Like the companies have revenue, there's other investors, you know, you're not, you're not kind of hanging your neck out there. So for us, it's all about the soft skills, which is about the founders and how they interact with people and are they going to be successful? You know, we have a a company in our portfolio called Signpost, 
and we were an early investor in Signpost. They're based out of New York. They're now 300 people. They're killing it. They got Google Ventures, Spark Capital, OpenView, Georgian. And I think if you ask Stu Wall, he would say we're probably still one of his most active investors because we care and because Stu is responsive to it, right? When I say, hey, Stu, we just hired a new head of sales and a head of BD. Why don't you let them come to my office and we'll see where we have relationships to accelerate their conversations. The team comes in. We spend two or three hours in my office. You know, we put together a list of follow-ups. I do the follow-up. I keep track of it. And so, you know, that's driven by a super confident entrepreneur at the top that knows a resource that I can add as an investor, right? I can't compete with the money that all these other firms have. So we, we at Scout punch way out of our weight class by being good people that spend a lot of time on the soft skills to get those entrepreneurs there. And, and I'll, I'll add that as you now raise a larger vehicle, I'm going to guess that it, it's going to give you the dry powder and, and and the base to really go deep with these founders early because you can have a bigger check. Because, yeah, you know, for angels, exactly let me tell you, for angels, you know how it is, right? Because you've been an angel before you were a VC. It's like, you know, you, you, you meet people and they're in a rush and maybe there's a, a, a large seed fund involved and, you know, they're going to fill out the round with four or five value-add angels and you meet them and it's, a, you know, this doesn't happen all the time, but you meet them, it's quick and they're in a hurry and you... You have yeah. a coffee and this and that. And yeah. you, so, you don't really have the standing to say, hey, let's spend more time together. Meet these five people. You know, it's just they don't have time sometimes. That's that's the issue. No, I, I agree. So, number one, you know, I learned a very, very, very long time ago. You cannot get upset by missing a deal. Right. So, Whoa. you know, that, that's big. Like you can't, you're, you're going to, you're, you're going to miss a deal. Everybody's going to miss a deal. And so I don't like getting rushed or pressured. Every time I've gotten rushed or pressured and written a check, it's been a bad idea. Wow. Every single time. Wow. Right. And most of the time, those are large party rounds with a couple of named VCs that we all know. Yep. And, you know, you're taking a little bite side and, you know, you're arguing over pro rata information rights. And you know what? That's going to come back and haunt you when they squeeze you in the A and they kick you out of the B. And, you know, you can get upset with it. But if you follow your checklist, you know, you can't get upset. So, you know, one of the things we did was when I went from being Brad Angel Investor to saying, hey, we're going to be scout an institution, I sat down with Corey and Brennan and we talked about all the criteria of the key aspects of deals that we thought were important. And some of those were the soft side. How many founders, tech and non-tech? You know, can the business become capital efficient on the first $5 million of invested capital? You know, little things like that. And, you know, that, that fact about... You know, can it become capital efficient on the first five million? That doesn't mean we don't want them to go raise a hundred million dollars of follow-on capital and become a great company. But if they can demonstrate 
how to get to profitability with their product and their revenue model and all of that on the first $5 million, they're going to be a healthy company. That's why Olympic was profitable. That's why Bespoke was profitable. That's why these companies are profitable because we're much more disciplined. And so for me, you know, we now have these 45 criteria. You know, one of, one of the criteria that's not really in the list is, you know, if you showed up to the party late and you don't have enough time to get all the information to make a decision, like, if you write a check because other people are in the deal, then you're not doing your job, right? Like, you gotta, you have, like we, have our own, we have our own thing. I'm not saying it's always right. I'm not saying it's the best thing. But it's our thing, right? And so being disciplined and adhering to our thing and our process. Now, if we love an entrepreneur, can we get a deal done in two weeks or four weeks? Absolutely. And we've, and, and we've done that. But, you know, normally, you know, it's like a chemistry and we know and, you know, we've, we've been focusing on that sector or, we, you know, we know where the entrepreneur comes from. Yeah, but and also, you know, you're in the community, man. You are in the community. You're, you're there. You're in Tribeca. You're available. Your team's available. You, you, you're always talking to people. You're engaging with people. You're not one of these investors that you know, trains in for a day and trains back out to wherever, yeah. wherever they're coming in from and tries to, you know, do yeah. sniper shots on, on, on deals. This is, this yeah. is, this is, I want to get into that later, like the organic approach that you have, um, as, as the unofficial mayor of, of Tribeca, but we'll, we'll get into that. Um, you, you, you just mentioned before, uh, that one of the goals is, you know, capital efficiency. Can they, you know, within the first five million bucks, getting them to a great Series A with great investors. How do you think about relationships with other VCs? Uh, what is a good Series A? Give us yeah. your thoughts on that. So, so a couple of things. So, first off, I'm you know I feel very blessed and fortunate. You know, when I started in '99, the first two guys I met were Todd Dagris and Howard Anderson. I was their teaching assistant at MIT Sloan. So, you know, you can't have a better older brother than Todd, right? I mean, he's he's the you know 1800 pound gorilla in BC, right? Um, and I was the first check into Hemet Tanasia's company at General, who's now a partner at General yeah, Catalyst. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I was there when you know David Fialco and Joel were in the Prudential Center. So, I I have a lot of legacy relationships where you know these are people I've now known. It's amazing, but you know, 17 years, yeah. Yeah. right? And so I feel like that's a very different spot than a lot of these emerging VCs that made a bunch of money at Google or Facebook and all of a sudden are VCs. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about Hunter and those guys, right? Like, right. you know, that's that's a different. I'm talking about people that, you know, just kind of show up and their philosophy is, well, I worked at Facebook and I know these people. <laughs> yeah. and, right. You know, my, right. my friends each wrote me a million dollar check and, you know, because their friends are richer than my friends, they have more AUM on their first fund. Um, but that's, you know, that's not... That's not the long-term process, right? The long-term process has got to be, hey, you know, we're going to do this. What we do is really hard. 
And so with a series A and series B, you know, what we like to do is show the deals very early. So we'll show a deal nine months, 12 months, six months before we're even going to start the series A conversation. Um, so, you know, Jeremy Liu at Lightspeed, um, who is, you know, very popular these days because he did Snapchat, mm -hmm. you know, Jeremy and I work together at AOL. And so we have a good relationship with Lightspeed. So we've done a bunch of deals out of Seattle and LA and, you know, we'll show those deals to Lightspeed early in the life cycle. You know, one of the deals that we're writing a check in now, we actually, um, showed it to Lightspeed before we ever wrote a check, knowing that it was way early for Lightspeed, but just to like get it on the radar, just to right. get, you know, and I think, you know, that takes a lot of time. The other thing is, you know, you got to go have lunch with your colleagues, you know, um, you know, Dan Sipurian from Canaan, I'm having lunch with in March. I had lunch with Ben, having lunch with, you know, Charlie from Brooklyn Bridge, Josh from Lux Capital. You know, you, you just got to go out there. You know, Ian from Graycroft right. has, been a, has been a mentor and friend. So you just got to kind of go out there and have those conversations, right? You know, I, I always enjoy my time with Chris Frylock. I think he's a super smart guy with a, just a great, like, demeanor. And, like, that's what I want for my entrepreneurs, right? I want, right, again, if you're the older brother, yep. you want to make sure that they go under the wing of somebody else that's going to take care of them and protect them. Love that. And so, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to do that. And, listen, in my early days, we've definitely had some disagreements with other investors on approach or what happened with the company or how it was handled. And, you know, I finally just like let all that go, yeah. right? Like yeah. just let it go. Like it's the past. <laughs> nobody's happy. Like nobody's happy we lost money. Like let's just not, whatever got us there, let's just not repeat that behavior in the next thing. Right. And so that's, you know, I think a lot of this is, you know, finding the right investor. And so we'll spend a lot of time talking to the entrepreneur and saying, OK, who do you think is the right investor? Why? And then we'll go through and actually do um, double opt in introductions where we reach out to the, you know, the investor and say, hey, we got this portfolio company. Here's where we like it. We think it's a fit. And then if they come back and say, great, then we make the introduction and, you know, we go from there. Yeah. yeah. You're on the cusp of, of moving to the next level in terms of fund size. Uh, you and I have talked about, you know, the difference between playing offense and sort of, you know, just receiving deals and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Cultivating the network. Uh, share your thoughts for this next phase uh, about your network, about yeah. RADA, about the, the whole picture. What, what, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, actually, it was, you know, it was, uh, I think Jeremy Levine from Bessemer about three years ago was um, at an event and he was explaining that he spends a lot of his time, you know, kind of reading and looking at trends and seeing companies that he finds interesting and then like calling the founder and like, now again, he's writing later stage checks. 
but it really kind of dawned on me, like the difference between being proactive and reactive, right? So, you know, we've built this proprietary network. You know, we currently get about 25 deals a day of, of varying quality, right? We put that through our, our process and our filter, but that's not as exciting as when I reach out to Bill Allett at MIT and say, hey, Bill, we're spending a lot of time looking at deep learning, machine learning, and AI in these verticals. You know, who should I be talking to out of the grad or undergrad crowd? And Bill Allett will say, hey, Brad, meet this guy. Well, you know, we just wrote a small check to a, an entrepreneur from MIT named Ian Cinnamon. You know, Ian got introduced to me through Bill Allett. He's got a background in uh, machine learning and a background in drones, two areas we're very active on. Bill made the introduction. Ian came in. We came up with an idea for a company. We now have formed that company. And yesterday, I spent the whole day in D.C., doing meetings with the TSA with Ian and I. So not only, you know, did we actively find the entrepreneur, like I'm actively leveraging my relationships in government to like do what we need to do, right? And I had a, another guy named Doug Jeffrey, who's a class of 69 West Pointer, who has all these senior relationships in DC, who set up three other meetings. Right. And so that that is us being as active as we can be on the pyramid. Right. And so, you know, the guys at Insight Venture Partners have a floor of 40 people that all they do is go out and try to identify great companies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when as we get bigger, you'll see two things happen. So this idea of the scout studio model actually helping an entrepreneur coming up with an idea um, or taking an idea and coming up with a strategy. I think you're going to see us doing more of that and writing bigger checks into that Mm -hmm. Um, because I think, and you know, I know Ben's son um, agrees with me. We were talking about it the other day. You know, if you can give that entrepreneur the first couple of hundred thousand dollars so that they can focus I'm figuring out product market fit and what the team needs to look at and all of that. And you've done a proper analysis of the opportunity and all of that and the competitive landscape. That entrepreneur, by relieving that financial stress, can be so laser focused. And then you add your access to key relationships, your ability to help them find a tech founder, whatever it is, that becomes very value add. And we think that. You know, if we are going to go up to writing, let's say, a 750 or million dollar check to own 10 to 15 percent of that company, can we do the same 750 but stagger it in a way so we can own 25 percent of the company, or you know, a more you know double or triple because we were instrumental in funding? And you know, the guys at LightBank out of Chicago did that with four companies that they turned into billion dollar companies. Yeah, and at the, the end of the coupon stuff and everything else. Yeah. 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 And at the end of the day, you know, that's really about, um, how can we utilize our relationships and our capital to get the most out of it, to build the best types of companies. So I think you're going to see us doing more of that. And then the other thing, you know, we have a very strong intern program here. So we always have, 
um, undergraduate and graduate interns. We normally have, you know, two of each at any given moment. Right now, we actually have um, four that are coming into the office on different days of the week, and we have a full team of interns at Carnegie Mellon, which is the other university we're spending a lot of time based on what we're investing in. So MIT and Carnegie Mellon, people on the ground, relationships with young interns, keeps us close to the stuff coming out of the labs and the newest cutting-edge technology, and then we can take our experience being great company builders and help you know these companies have a better foundation as they build it. And then the last thing we're doing is actually picking up topics. So, you know, right now, um, my analyst Corey is working with the interns, and we're actually creating an internal white paper on machine learning and AI. And we're going through and we're, you know, studying the difference between supervised and unsupervised AI and the ethics of AI and what the top companies in AI are and what verticals and how much money and what type of technology and where does quantum computing fit in. And the reason we're doing that is because, yes, we know it's somewhere we want to be investing and we know we need to learn about it because it's cutting edge, right. right? So if you send me an AI company and I haven't done any background on AI, then the entrepreneur comes in, my questions are not as good, they're not as focused, and I can't really add the same level of value. However, if me and the team spend a bunch of time, you know, looking at certain aspects and you know, using that to define what sector of the market we want to invest in. So I'll give you a perfect example: Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we have a relationship with Adam Draper at Boost VC. Yep. We've been we've been looking at alternative currencies and Bitcoin. You know, and for us, um, I, I love Fred Wilson's investment in Coinbase. I'm a user. You know. But like that would have been the only one of those types of services companies we would have invested in during that time. Mm-hmm. Now we're spending a lot of time looking at, well, what kind of services can leverage the Bitcoin protocol and architecture to make them more effective? You know, so real estate, who actually owns the property? Who owns the deed? Where's the deed registered? You know, right now you buy a piece of property, you waste five thousand dollars on a title search, which is just a piece of joke. Like why like why can't that be registered in some sort of you know Bitcoin protocol where you know you can just check out the ledger and find out who really owns it? And so I think those are the types of things where you know we watch the market, we watch the market, we watch the market, and now we're looking at specific parts of the market where we think there's opportunity, right? Um, and, and I think that's what you got to do. I think the other thing is you know you have to be flexible about what you invest in. The market moves at such light speed. Yes. You know, if you would, if you had in 1980 invested in CD manufacturing, you would have had an amazing decade. But if somebody brought you a CD manufacturing company in 2015, you'd think they were an idiot, right? So, you know, you have to change um, what your investment focus is based on kind of the prevailing time. So, for example, you know, when I did my first deal. They took 500 of the million dollars to buy servers to code the, 
the, the program up. And, you know, now you get that same server capacity for $30 a month. And if you reach out to Brad Steele or Matt at AWS, they'll give you the AWS credits. So you don't even pay anything for the first, you know, couple of years. And so think about how different building a company is when you have to do that. And now what we're doing is we're looking at, you know, companies that are, you know, creating services and um, products for this new way of developing, right? So, you know, now the developers spend a lot of time putting things in containers and running the, you know, so that's very different. Like, how do I monitor the effectiveness of that? What is the uptime? Well, you know, how do I make the developer's job easier? You know, one of the things that I hear from developers a lot is, hey, we use a lot of open source. We integrate a lot of open source into our code. But the problem is there's not a good place to get accurate information on the pitfalls of that open source. Or, you know, where can we find somebody that's coded using that open source but has actually then done a couple of add-ons that make it better, right? So, you know, that's stuff that we're looking at because I got a team of developers that sit outside my office and I hear them bitching about the challenges sometimes of just doing monitoring in the way in which they're now deploying all this data into containers and using that to run a more efficient, you know, kind of cloud-based software. Let's go back uh, in time a little bit and switch gears. Uh, sure. You, you went to West Point. Uh, you served uh, in, in the Army. Tell us a little about your early days. Why did you want to go to West Point? What was that experience like? How's it informed who you are today? Tell us a little about yeah, that. Yeah, so, so actually it was kind of funny. I thought I was going to go play football at Princeton, and I thought my best friend was going to go to West Point, and somehow we did a swap. <laughs> he wound up going to Princeton, and I wound up going to West Point. You know, I, I mean, I think, so I grew up, my, uh, my father bought the house from his father that he grew up in. And so my grandfather, who was a World War II vet, um, I spent a tremendous amount of time with him, you know, from when I was, a, you know, as long as I can remember. And so my grandfather had always been, you know, you know, we would watch John Wayne and Toro, Toro, Toro on Sunday. And, you know, it used to be. So I, I always did that. And as a kid, you know, growing up in Westchester, I always would build forts and play in the snow and pretend I was in the trench of World War One or II. Um, so uh, my mentor, Dick Parsons, used to take used to take me up to West Point for football games with his son, Greg, who's my best friend. And so, you know, it was always kind of a little seed in the back of my head. And I had this realization at some point that, I don't know, I wanted to take a different path. And I went, I interviewed at West Point because I'm Jewish. There's a real shortage of um, (laughs) highly qualified athletic Jews, apparently. And so, you know, I was, I was admitted the first hundred in the class out of 15,000 applications. And I thought that was a sign. And then I excelled there. You know, it was, you know, you're evaluated on three things, academic, physical, and militarily. And, you know, I was an honor grad because I was good at all those things. And what I think it did was it really allows you to grow up where 
you're much more responsible at a young age than your peers. Right? At, at, you know, at 22, I was in charge of 34 guys, right? You know, at, at 25, I was in charge of 100 guys. You know, at, at 27, I was on the general staff, you know, talking to, you know, I would go to Japan and meet with the general of the JDF to, you know, get ready for, you know, my guys coming over. So I think it allowed me to... Um, be more responsible at a period in my life that I think if I had not had that call and that duty, you know, maybe I would have been much more careless. And so it allowed me to really develop a lot of skills that I think now serve me well. Um, and, you know, again, when I joined the military, it wasn't such a popular thing. Now we've been at war for the last 12 years. And so I think people respect the military service you know i was an airborne ranger so you know i think um part of going through that training and actually i was in a, a class called uh 395 where uh, four of our classmates actually died um to hypothermia so you know at a, at a very young impressionable age I, A, got to do something that was so difficult with such a low success rate, and I excelled at it. I graduated second in my class uh, behind my classmate, John Hickson, who beat me out, the rock star that he is. Um, and I was good at it. And so it reinforced my self-confidence and reinforced my leadership. But it was also very humbling to lose, you know, four classmates. It made me understand how if you make a really simple bad decision without thinking it through, it can have really bad consequences. Um, and so it's always made me a little bit more, even though you know I'm not very serious when I laugh and I have a lot of fun, you know, I, I feel like there's this switch that when I need to be serious and I need to be on point and I need to be there, whether it's for... One of my kids when they fall down and cut themselves, or if it's for one of my entrepreneurs when they fall down and screw something up, I feel like I have the ability to kind of snap to and be present and you know be valuable in that role. You're right. Um, thank you for that. And I and I know you've invested in in a number of companies with you know that have a military angle to them or purpose. Um, I know you have the United U.S. guys that went to Columbia yep. in your portfolio, tremendous people. And I, I'm sure that, you know, as you get into frontier tech, you know, that network that you have will just keep adding value to those founders that you back. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, I got all these friends, you know, my friend Claire Gill commands the um, aviation attack brigade out of Fort Drum. He actually just deployed to um, Iraq yesterday with the brigade. But, you know, it's amazing. I'll get like this technology that is related to, you know, drones or helicopter simulators or whatever, you know, and I can send it to a guy that commands, you know, 500 Blackhawk pilots, right? right? And, and, you know, has done really amazing stuff. And not that Claire might understand or not understand the technology, but, you know, to get a, a real world operator's view of things, 
um, I think is something you, you can't replicate. Um, and so I feel very fortunate that my West Point classmates always entertain my request to look at, you know, wacky things. You, uh, you're in Tribeca. You've been there for how many years now? 15, uh, 15, 20, 15 yeah. years. 15 I mean, years. When I'm going down to Tribeca now, it's like Brad Harrison, scout. I, I, it's <laughs> like you, you, you kind of like have this, this sort of uh, influence over the area. <laughs> so I, I, and I dropped in on you recently into your, into your uh, two floor bunker there. It's, it's quite spectacular. You, you've been in there. You're a huge part of the community. You, you you walk your kids to school there. You have a great, blog called mayorbrad.com and you wrote some very cool posts recently in the last year one of them is, is called living versus working and that we're doing life all wrong let's get into that a little bit um, sure you 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 know you've been you've been doing a lot of uh meditation a lot of thinking lately i see that in you what what's what's cooking well you know i I think there was a part of my career where my peers were all focused on making money, whether they were bankers or hedge fund guys or whatever, like what people were selecting to do and spend their time was driven by a financial number, right? Like how much money, right? And as you know, I've, I've now worked for myself for the last 11 years, right? And I, don't always uh, feel good about the economics of, of the situation. But what I realized is, you know, the most important thing is family. Yep. And so to me, being able to walk my kids to school, pick my kids up from school, you know, like not that I do it every day, but just being present was a priority for me. And, you know, once I kind of started resetting my priorities in terms of how I allocated my time, good things started to happen. And, you know, I think what people don't realize is, you know, there's this amazing um, article by this guy, Derek Thompson, who writes for the Atlantic Monthly, who wrote this article um, called A World Without Work. It was probably 15, 20 months ago. And, you know, he basically says, well, listen, in the United States, the number one source of employment for males over the age of 18 is driving. And in 15 years, those jobs are gone. So what happens when not everybody gets to work, right? What, what, what if we're doing it wrong? What if working is really something we should be doing two days a week or three days a week and, you know, exercising or cooking or spending time developing your family or your kids is actually more important for the overall health of humanity and the planet, right? Yeah. You know, if you look at if you look at the world today, we're in a very different spot because you know everybody's got you know it doesn't even matter if you're in a jungle like that tribal leader has an iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's right. he's going to record the he's going to record the video of the oil leak <laughs> in the middle of the Amazon, right? Well, that didn't exist for a really long time. And so, you know, a lot of, I would say, the modern economic system and the social dynamics that have been created by that, it, it's kind of made up 
right? Like the whole economic system is made up. And so if I stopped valuing everything based on like, oh, am I definitely going to make money, right? And I'm not saying that, listen, our investments are for profit, right? It's about making money. But we're, remember, just to be clear, this is about the journey to how we got to this mindset. And for me, the journey was the realization that like, you know, it really doesn't matter. Like the money really doesn't matter. And, you know, whether or not you have 1,200 square feet or 2,000 square feet and do you drive this car or that, like none of that crap matters at all. And so as soon as I started realizing that none of that mattered, it just kind of freed up the mental space to start to have creative thoughts about things that did matter and things that would make the world better. And, you know, we have this company, I think I told you, it's the one that I'm most passionate about and the one you probably see me on, on Facebook the most, which is Greensbury Market. Yes. Yes. So, you know, we sell organic meat and sustainable seafood. I, you know, when my wife was pregnant with our first child, I quit drinking. I went on a health quick. I lost 50 pounds. I started researching, eating, you know, organic meat and wild seafood and cutting out all these things. And, you know, and what I realized is, you know, the entire food supply in America is actually broken. The entire food chain is broken, right? Right now, we've basically 41% of the perishable items in supermarkets get thrown away as garbage. I think, it, I think it's 221 pounds per American per year, right? So when you start to think about that and you start to say, like, seriously, people are going hungry or... Right? I'm paying X amount of dollars for lettuce or, you know, I mean, I go to Whole Foods and I'm like blown away at how overpriced things are. And so part of the reason we started Greensbury was because we wanted to go back to giving people the ability to understand what sustainability meant. Right. Like I grew up and I thought you went, you go to the butcher, you buy a fresh steak. Now I realize that most of the stuff in the counter at Whole Foods was previously frozen. Half of it is not from America, which means it was shipped on a freighter. Right. So a lot of the beef comes from Uruguay. A lot of the lamb comes from New Zealand. Like I'll go there and I'll buy local New York lamb from upstate. Um, because that's local, but for the most part, like people don't care. They're driven by price again, right? So how could we change the food supply? And when we started, we were a little operation. We were, you know, we were buying, you know, a half a cow at a time, putting that in and shipping that out. You know, now with my partners, the Ristellis, who have become equity partners, we actually own the largest vertically integrated organic grass-fed beef operation in the country, which basically means we're now involved from when the calves are born all the way through to when they're slaughtered. We have an inspector at the slaughterhouse. We have, you know, a bunch of inspectors at the processing, and we control the process. So we control it from when they go to the slaughterhouse to when they get shipped to the processing to when they get distributed. And so I as one of the, the largest lifetime 
customers of Greensbury, I know when something's not right. And that's why we offer a, a satisfaction guarantee. Because you know what? At the end of the day, it's still an animal. If I gave you an entire set, if I gave you every single New York strip from a beautiful organic grass-fed cow, you're not going to like the way the steaks on the ends are butchered. Well, I, I can't help that, right? There's, there's always going to be an end to the tenderloin or whatever. So understanding how to you know, cut that up into tips or whatever it is so that the customer is happy. But, you know, I think the irony is, you know, when I started selling, nobody was buying food over the internet. We were the first organic, sustainable food company. In 2007, my founder and I were working on it. In 2009, we went live. You know, now you got Blue Apron, Plated. Um, I love Nick at Plated, also a veteran. Yes. But at the end of the day, those guys are all selling the lowest quality protein because they're trying to get to a price per meal. And what people need to understand is the most important ingredient on your plate is your fish, your chicken, your beef, or whatever your protein is. So I actually think they all have it wrong. And you know, they're all worth two, three, four billion dollars. That makes me think I got a really huge opportunity ahead of me as soon as we educate people on, hey, you know, actually, if we kill the steak and we process it and we flash freeze it, it'll actually last in your freezer a year. And if you thaw it out, it'll have all the blood as if it was just killed. Well, you can't get that at Whole Foods. If you buy a steak at Whole Foods, I guarantee you there's no blood in it because it's been sitting on the counter for two days. So, you know, again, I'm passionate about things, and that's been that ties into what we're talking about, like the personal journey, right? It's not about going to Peter Luger's and eating, you know, a $200 grain-fed steak, which I love. Like, we can go there. But you can't do that as part of your sustainable diet, right? And so how can we make people healthier? Because ultimately, healthy, happier people build a healthy, healthy happier world. Absolutely. And so, you know, for me, I think a lot of this meditation and yoga and exercise is about, you know, finding your own inner peace. And, you know, the key is... Until everybody finds their own inner peace, you can't have world peace. And so that's a really important thing, right? And so what we're talking about, giving, you know, I, I so often, I, I say to my entrepreneurs that I'm proud of them, yeah. I'm pr especially when they've had to make a, a hard decision. Like I'm proud of the way you handle that situation. I'm proud of that decision. And I do that. And there I go from being an older brother to kind of that father figure, right? And thinking about, you know, how you sometimes just need that uncon you know, unconditional love, right? Absolutely. And so that's, you know, that's been part of this journey. And I think, I think ultimately, you know, one day when, when Scout's a bigger firm and hopefully there's a bunch of other partners here and hopefully one day I'm, I'm like Fred Wilson talking about generational succession and, you know, hanging out. And, you know, I think what I want people to remember is kind of the soft aspect of really what's important. And, you know, we say a lot of times that I'm not going to do certain deals because I don't see how they add value. So, for example, 
you know, Harry's might be a great company, but it wasn't for me, right? It's not a tech company. It's selling razors. You know, it's it's leveraging some economic inefficiencies. Casper, the same way. Box, the same way. Like, they're just... They might be great, successful companies, and my friends that have invested in them are doing great, and I hope they have great exits. But they don't get me excited. And they don't get me excited because I don't see the bigger value. Like, oh my God, I now have somebody come pick up my storage instead of going to the storage unit. You know, like that's, okay, maybe that saves you an hour or two, but that's not going to change people's lives. And so... You know, I think a lot of the things that we've done, you know, we try to have a personal relationship with what that solution is to say, hey, are people going to smile because of what we've built? Right. With Bespoke Post, they sell a box of men's awesomeness. Right. Like that's like how great is that tagline? I have a company that sends people a box of awesomeness, you know, with Greensbury. We send people stuff that is good for them, right? And by the way, you know, you and I talked about it. That has not been an easy path, right? You know, it's been undercapitalized. It's dealt with, you know, building a logistics chain. You know, it's very, listen, if building a company were easy, there'd be a lot more entrepreneurs and a lot more successful companies, Right now, we've got a lot of entrepreneurs who don't have many successful companies because it's still really hard. And that's why, Dave, I think what you and I always agree with is let's go back to the basics. Okay, guys, here are the four things that kill early stage companies. Let's avoid that. Hey, team, this is why we report and communicate effectively, right? Hey, you know, make sure you go out and you hug your founder once a week or whatever it is so that you you build the right culture and environment to be nurturing, you know? And, you know, when you look at companies that become mega successful, like Google, what do they do? Hey, employees, you know, you want to work from home one day a week, you want to spend 10% of your time innovating, like, go do that, right? They're right. doing that to nurture. And, you know, obviously at Scout, we have a little bit less capital deployed than our colleagues at Google, but we can have the same nurturing environment. Um, and I hope, Dave, that as part of my legacy with the entrepreneurs that we've touched, these are the things they're going to say that they loved about Scout, right? Not that we wrote a check for X amount of money, but that when stuff was going really crappy, we were there. Uh, when they needed to, you know, fire somebody, we helped. When they needed to, you know, take some time off because their wife was pregnant, we figured out how to do that. Whatever it is, right? Um, and, you know, we also have a diversified base of founders, right? I think about 32 or 35% of our portfolio is women and minorities. You know, we don't actively say we're looking for any type of founder, but I think, again, that's a good representation of our network and what, what energy, like putting a certain energy out brings a certain energy back. And so that's what we're trying to do. And, you know, I mean, I love Suzanne at uh, Hullabaloo. 
you know, she's basically redefining the next generation Disney using technology that automates the animation and builds these dynamic stories. So when the kid touches the iPad, the little bear laughs. And if they tilt it this way, he walks that way. Like genius, yeah. right? Genius. I mean, super simple in terms of its idea, but I get it, right? I hand that and I see how that makes the iPad experience for a parent, which by the way, I think is, a, I think screen time and the information that kids are consuming is not good because it's, it's actually stifling the imagination, right? Like my wife and I, you know, I said to her, you know, I would notice that after my son, we would, you know, put him in bed and go through his bedtime routine. He would like kind of putz around his room, right? And he would play things and, and like that to me was great. That was his uh, imagination and his exploration and all of that, right? So, you know, is it sometimes hard when your kids aren't behaving not to just put the TV or the iPad in front? Absolutely. But we have this need to change the way we interact with the children of this world to make the world a better place. You know, I, I think in one, in one of my blog posts, and maybe I haven't even published it yet, but, you know, I... I've realized that, you know, if we were to reprogram humanity with a new set of values, right, that we're about being more mindful and more concerned with the planet and, you know, all, and where money and greed and all of that, there's, there's two things. Number one, no baby comes out with a program language, right? They come out, they don't speak any language, which is why whether or not you teach them in English or French or you put them with a pack of wolves, They'll figure out how to happen, right? right? So number one, no, you know, no child is is born with a language, which means we have the opportunity to develop language, and that language can be broader than just English. It can be that it's okay if you're a boy to cry because yep. crying is healthy, or you know, it's like changing kind of the the, the stereotype and the programming. And you know, the second thing is. Nobody is born with racism, sexism, or hatred in their heart. So how do we change that which they consume so that they feel love and they feel equality and they feel inclusiveness? And I'm not saying we figure that out, but I use Susan as a little example of just changing the way content interacts with the child on the iPad to make them smile differently, to make them turn it differently, to make them walk away. If they walk away a little bit brighter and happier, then that's a good thing, yes. right? And, you know, listen, I, I think this is, uh, you and I got a 50-year journey ahead of us to, to make these changes, but I think, you know, having these as part of your core values, I think, flows through to the entrepreneurs and the way in which you invest and the way in which you do everything. And, you know, you hope over, you know, the lifetime of a career that you touch enough people and pass it on so that, you know, you make a change. Brad, this, this has been a tremendous conversation. You're one of a kind. I learned so much. I know everyone listening has. Thank you very much, my friend. We'll do it again. Okay. Love you, buddy. Be well. Show you 
around, give you a taste of the business, you know?